Howdy and welcome to the 10-week Bible study. This is week three, day one of our study of Acts. I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs, and today we're talking about Acts 7, 1 through 29. Well, welcome back to the 10-week Bible study. Again, I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs. Would you join me as we pray before we start today? Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what your word has to say to us, God? Fill our hearts with the knowledge of you. We want to encounter you in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that, let's jump into God's word. I'm reading today from the NIV. This is Acts 7, starting in verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared. Let me pause right there. The charges against Stephen, remember yesterday, were that the, the people from the synagogue, the freedmen, they've brought all of these people up and, and they're saying, you know, Stephen is telling everyone not to follow the laws of Moses, yada, yada, yada. And so they brought him before the Sanhedrin here. And so this is him standing before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of, of Israel. And so they ask him, are these charges true? And Stephen's going to go into quite a long sermon. And this has always puzzled me, actually. This, this whole chapter, this whole passage is, is very interesting because here's Stephen, a, you know, supposedly an untrained person, someone who is now going to teach the teachers. He's going to speak. And, and it, to me, if, if I were one of the Sanhedrin, I would almost feel like it's coming across a little condescendingly. He's going through the history of Israel. And I've got to imagine that several of the people in the, the crowd of the Sanhedrin are sitting there thinking, okay, why are we getting a history lesson from this guy who's under accusation? And so he, he actually tells a, a lot of history before he makes the point. One of the reasons, and, and the Bible doesn't say this, I want to be very clear here, but I, I think, um, I, I have a theory about why Luke included the entirety of the sermon. Because Luke could have, could have said, hey, Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin, he stood his ground, he said, you know, I believe in Jesus of Nazareth, and it made them angry, and so they stoned him and killed him. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read ahead, <laughs> Stephen's going to be the first martyr. I think there's a lot of different ways Luke could have written this story, but he includes kind of a shorthand word for word account of Stephen's sermon. And and the reason that I find that interesting is is even Peter's sermons that we see in the book of Acts are not recorded in such detail and at such length. This is essentially the longest sermon, the longest thing that anyone says in all of the book of Acts. And I don't think that Luke wrote this down in such detail, at such length, on accident. Jesus told his disciples that, you know, when you get drugged before magistrates and before city councils and kings or whatever, under accusation because of me, he says, this is going to happen. He says, when that happens, don't plan what you're going to say in advance. The Holy Spirit, I will give you words. I will fill your mouth in those moments. This is such an amazing sermon, for lack of a better word, that Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin. This is, I think, one of the best retellings of their history to make this point that he's going to make anywhere in Scripture. This feels Holy Spirit-inspired. I think, and again, the Bible does not say this explicitly, but I think Luke includes this passage at this length and in this detail 
because this is a fulfillment or one of the fulfillments of what Jesus says. When you get drug in front of these people, don't plan what you're going to say. I'll fill your words. The way all of this plays out, what happens at the end, the way Stephen looks up and, and sees the Son of Man standing standing at the right hand of God, all of these things, I think the Holy Spirit is filling his mouth with words, and I think he's being obedient to that. I, I think, that's my opinion, that's my theory on why Luke includes this at such length and in such detail. And I think if you, you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that there's nothing quite like this. There's nothing quite like this really anywhere else in the New Testament. I mean, we have some things where, you know, like John 14 through 17, where Jesus is actually teaching his disciples at length. We see there's some extended teachings. We have the Sermon on the Mount, things like that. But outside of that, there's almost nowhere else in all of Scripture where there is such a, a longly, a wordily recorded sermon in, in one setting like this and especially to the people that he's giving it to and especially with the result that it has all right let's continue this is verse two to this he replied brothers and fathers listen to me the god of glory appeared to our father abraham while he was still in mesopotamia before he lived in haran leave your country and your people god said and go to the land i will show you so he left the land of the chaldeans and settled in haran after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not enough land, not an, even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. 400, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Now, again, Stephen is going back and he's giving essentially a history, a history lesson of the people of Israel, right? Starting with, with Abraham here, verse 8. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. It's interesting, you know, I think this inclusion of the jealousy of the brothers, that's an important point here. That's a very important point. Verse 11. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing a great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. Verse 12, when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent his, for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And again, I'm thinking if I'm one of the Sanhedrin I'm thinking, why are we being lectured on a history that we know exceptionally well by this guy? Verse 14. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Verse 16. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain amount of money. 
As time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Verse 18. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. And this is going to bring us to really, I think, the point of all of this. Moses is the crux of what Stephen is going to be talking about. We'll see why exactly here in a minute. Verse 20. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. Verse 21. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. I find this fascinating. Moses is very much like Daniel. Right? Moses was educated in Egypt. He was brought up with their, uh, the, their language and their culture, all these things. Just like Daniel. Daniel was essentially not raised, per se, in Babylon, but he was trained in the Babylonian literature and language. And Nebuchadnezzar said he's actually better at all of these things than any Babylonian ever has been. And so here, we, kind of, we have something very similar with Moses. Now, <clears throat> to lay some foundation for this, <clears throat> most people have a misconception about Moses and about his, his time in Egypt when he was in the palace. And I think it's largely because of some misunderstandings that have led to Hollywood movies and, and, and animated films to be made almost universally. All of these film adaptations and, and, and cartoons and children's stories, almost without exception, the storyline goes that Moses is put in the basket and you know Miriam takes him and watches him and the, the, the princess of Egypt takes Moses and raises him. And then from that point on, Moses never knows that he's a Hebrew. He never knows that he's an Israelite. And again, you know, if, if you're just only reading that part of the Bible, I think it's still actually a little difficult to come to that conclusion when you're reading the book of Exodus. But if you're just kind of being told the stories, maybe in Sunday school or whatever, maybe you think in your mind, well, Moses didn't know he was a, he was a Hebrew, who was an Israelite. Biblically speaking, nothing could be further from the truth. We know, we know, we know from the Bible that and also from extra biblical sources like the Talmud, uh, Jewish history, we know that Moses, beyond a shadow of a doubt, knew who he was. He knew he was a Hebrew. Part of the storyline and the reason we know, it, the the daughter of Pharaoh, when she pulls him out of the water, she knows he's a Hebrew. She sees he's a Hebrew. She rescues him anyway, even though she knows that this has been done to save him from her father's decree to kill all the children. She rescues him. And Miriam is there with the basket. Miriam is wandering and she's hiding behind the reeds just to make sure that Moses doesn't get swept out into the current, right? Moses has to stay in this basket up against the shoreline. If he gets swept out into the middle of the current of the Nile River, he's going to get taken out to sea or, you know, eaten by an alligator or something. I mean, something bad is going to happen to him. And so Moses' mother sends Miriam with him to watch him and make sure he's okay. Miriam's there when the princess finds Moses She's like, oh, who's this? What's going on? And, and, and the princess of Israel looks at Miriam, Moses' older sister, and says, is there anyone who can nurse this child? Wink, wink, nod, nod. 
right? She's saying, where's, where's the mother? Just bring me the mother. I'm going to take care of him. Mother can come and nurse him. And so Moses's mother gets invited by Pharaoh's daughter to come and nurse Moses for some period of time. And it could have been indefinitely. We don't actually know this from scripture. Moses's mother actually comes to the palace and, and wean, you know, nurses and finishes weaning Moses Miriam and Aaron, they're all part of this, right? At no point, right? It, 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 it never, there's never a point in the narrative where Moses doesn't know who Miriam and Aaron are. Many of the adaptations, you know, it's like they have this serendipitous meeting where they discover, oh, we're brothers. Wow. None of that actually happened. Moses knew who he was the entire time. What Stephen is going to get to is that Moses knew he was a Hebrew, Moses knew he was a Hebrew when he's in the palace. He knew it. One of the things that happened is the people of Israel, they didn't like him. We're going to get into that here. I'm, I'm, I'll save that. But Moses, biblically, we, we know this from the, the scripture. We know this from Jewish historical accounts. Moses, there is, is no storyline other than Hollywood adaptations that Moses didn't know who he was. That's just non-existent in scripture. Moses knew exactly who he was his entire life. He knew he was a Hebrew. Verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. See that right there. Stephen is, is saying something that is exceptionally clear throughout the Old Testament. It's now I am not going to go into it, but the, the Talmud, the Jewish histories, they're replete with stories about Moses in Egypt. Uh, Stephen is familiar with a lot of them. And so he's not telling the Sanhedrin anything they don't know. But this is actually a shock. This is new information to a lot of Christians who, especially nowadays, who've grown up with these Bible stories, I think, being very incorrectly told. They make for good stories, right? It's it's kind of a, it's neat to have like, you know, Moses not know who he is and then go on this journey of discovery. It makes for good storytelling in those, those you know, adaptations, those Hollywood adaptations, but it's not true. It's just, that's the problem. It's just not true. It didn't happen that way. So Moses is thinking all along, I've, I'm in, I've ended up in the palace. Like he knows the history of the babies being killed. He knows that he's the one that's rescued and he's in the palace. And so he's thinking, the Lord's put me here for a reason. The Lord's put me here to be the savior of the Israelites. Now, the problem with all of this for Moses is they don't like Moses because Moses is in the palace. Moses is, you know, getting to live this life of luxury and, and he's living at great ease and they're all suffering. And so they're jealous of Moses. They don't like Moses for that reason. And so Moses is thinking, I'm going to, you know, start kind of being their deliverer. He kills this Egyptian. I think in Moses' mind, he's thinking maybe this is the moment that we, we you know, enact this coup or whatever and, and Israel takes over. I don't exactly know what was in Moses' mind, but I know that his intentions were to basically say, hey, I'm here to be Israel's savior. Verse 26 the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So so here, it's it's 
there's only one way, right? There's only one way anybody could have found out that Moses had killed the Egyptian. And that's that the Israelite that he was saving ratted him out. That's the only person who could have told people. And he went in and, and ratted Moses out to other Jews, other people. And, and the, the implication here, the, the way it's the, the connotation is not that he went around telling people, can you believe it? Moses saved me from the sky. No, they, they didn't like him. And so they're like, yeah, Moses killed the Egyptian. Like, you know, he thinks that he's above the law where he can just come and kill Egyptians. But that's the connotation we get from this encounter here. Verse 29, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. All right, so that is setting the stage. And, and the way that Stephen is telling this story, I think this is Holy Spirit inspired, but I think the way that this story is being told is it's coming to this point. And it's all about Jesus, right? I think you can start to see where this is headed and, and what Stephen's point is going to be and how he relates this to Jesus. But we're going to pause there. It's a long sermon. Like I said, we're going to pick it up tomorrow. So for the 10-week Bible study, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs. And I can't wait to see you next time. Hey, thanks for tuning into the 10-Week Bible Study Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a review for it on your podcast app of choice? It really helps other people find out about this podcast. And my heart is for people to fall in love with God's Word. Thank you.